Hello and welcome to the Standing for Truth Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Bedinsky, and together we will venture on a journey to explore the truth of biblical creation. Our ministry is also available on YouTube, so please search Standing for Truth and get access to the video versions of our programs. I'm Donnie Bedinsky, and as usual, Stay awesome and trust in the truth of God's Word. All right, we are live. Hey, everyone. I want to welcome you to this important debate about uh, endogenous retroviruses. Uh, My name is Sam. I'm going to be your moderator for tonight. Um, So if you guys have any questions, you can tag me at Redefine Living. That's two words. And so, yeah, um, just real quick, I want to let you guys know if you could uh, hit that thumbs up, it'll really help with the algorithm. And then, of course, leave comments after the video. That all helps, too. So I guess um, over on our right, we have Luca. You want to take a moment to introduce yourself? Yes. Uh, As you, most of you know, uh, I'm an atheist. I have a degree in chemistry. Uh, I work as a teacher. And I recently uh, opened a small, very small channel. And that's all. Uh, That's me. All right. Thank you. And then uh, definitely someone who's no stranger to the channel because (laughs) it's his channel. (laughs) Go ahead, Donnie. (laughs) Sam, thanks for doing this, brother. You nailed it. I'm going to be out of a job soon. You're so good at being a host and a moderator. So, yes, my name is Donnie B., I'm the founder of Standing for Truth Ministries. Uh, In terms of formal debates, I believe this is my 98th. I'm excited to be debating Luca, who's uh, well-studied and well-educated in these areas, being a a chemistry teacher. So I do appreciate you doing this, Luca. I've written a book specifically on this topic, the Endogenous Retrovirus Handbook, which Luca has assured me that he's he's read it all. I've also written uh, numerous other books, and I think as a ministry, we've, we've written close to 20 now. So uh, looking forward to this. Sam, thank you for being a host and moderator. And Luca, thanks for uh, being willing to engage in this debate. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for asking me. Um, all right, so really quick, the format, we're going to have 15-minute openings followed up by eight-minute rebuttals. And we're going to have a 40-minute discussion, which will be a dumpster fire, I'm sure. (laughs) Um, We're going to have five-minute closings after that. And then we're going to have 25-minute question and answers. So again, tag me, two words, redefine living. Be patient with me. I'm going to try to be saving these comments. So um, yeah, so I guess with that said, unless there's anything else, uh, who's going to go first? So was that, Luke, are you going to go first? For me, it's the same, Donnie. Yeah, well, I mean, being the the title, are endogenous uh, retrovirus is good evidence for evolution. Uh, Luca says yes. I say no. So, Luca, we'll have you start. Okay. All right. So, I think what I'll do, unless you don't want me to, Luca, I can let you know at fourteen minutes. Um, then mm-hmm. you'll have one minute to kind of finish up, or just go right to fifteen minutes, and then we'll yes. be gracious. And uh, I do have uh, my clock here, so okay. But uh, I do appreciate it appreciated uh, all right uh, if we are ready i can share my screen and start my presentation and let me uh remind people uh redefine living you might have already said 
Uh, for the Q&A portion, yeah, make sure you're tagging at Redefine Living, not at Standing for Truth. And then that way he won't um, he won't miss it. So, Luca, yeah, when you want to uh, share screen, let me know. I'll, I'll get it up there for you for your 15 minutes. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, that's the end of the, <laughs> the presentation. Uh, you all can see it. Luca, yes. you're giving us a sneak peek into the after credit scene before yes. the baby even starts. <laughs> yes. Marvel style. Okay, yeah, whenever you're ready. Okay, so debate uh, are endogenous retrovirus uh, evidence for evolution. Of course, uh, my answer is yes. So what's the evidence? Well, we have those sequence in our genome they look like remnants of viral infection and they follow a pattern cladistic. On these things, I think that me and Donnie would agree uh, without a problem. So where we do not agree. Evolution, RBR results of Asian infection and they reflect evolutionary pattern, the cladistic. Uh, for creation, ARVs are designed by a creator and they reflect a design. So those views are equal. For me, they are not, but we will talk about it uh, a little bit more. So uh, the Vige uh, hypothesis. I do not know the pronunciation of these things, but we will talk about it. So, uh, using the words of the author of the paper, we will see those are vages. So, uh, they are elements in our genome. Uh, they for this author, they precede uh, ARVs and I, they are the explanation for their existence. So not a viral infection, but a unit of DNA designed by the creator. A unit that uh, is the origin of uh, viruses uh, in the views of this scientist. So, here you can see a small part of the paper and I want to point out uh, the style of this paper. Uh, this is one of the pictures and it does represent uh, what will be the evolutionary uh, view of the process. And I think that it's not uh, really um, something that uh, a real uh, scientist would uh, use, I think. Uh, first of all, the um, terms used are uh, for sure um, made by R, um, R for a public of uh, younger creationists, not for scientists. The, um, it's not for scientists, this paper. And I think that uh, it's wrong on a couple of things. 
you cannot uh, have a substitution like that. I do not think that any scientist will propose anything like that. But uh, it's not my real problem with the paper. Uh, here you can see uh, the proposed uh, mechanism for evolution. Uh, and here you can see uh, the mechanism proposed in the paper for the existence of ERVs uh, for the creation uh, worldview, let's say that. As you can see, those units, those units uh, in this hypothesis are already in the genome. Here you can see they are already designed like that. And that's the hypothesis from this paper. Why I have a problem with it? Uh, I will say that this hypothesis could uh, be right, but I have a specific reason to uh, do some criticism on it. So here you can see my points. That would be a good hypothesis. If we can show uh, the intact, uh, intact uh, VIG, maybe not all of them, but at least some of them. And how will it be possible to show something like that? Well, uh, if uh, the young Earth creation uh, narrative is true, we could uh, find uh, DNA of ancient humans or, or at least humans close to the flood, so less uh, degraded humans, and we will be able to show these elements in our genome. So, um, yes, uh, also to show the actual presence of a designer would be uh, optimal. Uh, let's say that. Let's see uh, on the uh, secular side uh, what we have. So, of course, uh, for what I can say, tell, uh, ARBs are uh, traces of ancient infections. Uh, so, why we think so? Uh, it's possible to show a mechanism that leads to the formation of ERBs. So we can observe this kind of mechanism. And of course, uh, if we can show uh, instances, uh, example of this happening, and to show uh, these uh, elements to be integrated in the genome and to be kept uh, to be inherited uh, by the descendant of that organism. So, yes, we can, uh, but it's not like I will just tell you so. I, I did bring some examples. So, first uh, example, uh, it's uh, from actually from uh, uh, um, cita uh, citation, a quote from uh, Dennis' book, uh, more like uh, one of the paper cited uh, in the book. 
And yes, uh, scientists did observe uh, the novel uh, insertion of ARVs, and they also observed the degradation uh, after the inclusion in uh, the DNA. It's a very interesting thing, if you think about that. Also, integration of transposons, so not uh, ERBs, uh, but transposons. Uh, transposons can be um, the result of the infection of something different from a virus, like uh, bacteria, but they can also be uh, from uh, viruses. Uh, and that's an example uh, from my previous debate. Um, basically, uh, the uh, insertion that led to the formation of corn, a uh, very uh, peculiar example, but I think it's a good one. Why not uh, using it again? I think it's a good one. Last one. I do not bring any situation for that, and there is a reason. Uh, I do have some uh, experience with those kind of things, so I can talk about uh, GMOs in some details without a situation. And it's important to note that we do understand this process, uh, the integration of transposon or ERVs uh, so well that we can use this process to uh, do GMOs. So it's a process so understood to this point that we can use it to our advantage. Uh, so that's a very um, good point from Donny. I want to admit it admit it. So uh, I was pointing on my previous debate with him that uh, LRVs, long terminal uh, repeats, were basically non-coding uh, pieces of DNA. But it's true, they do have a function uh, time to time. They can uh, promote uh, the expression of some genes and some are really, really important for us. Uh, I think that Donny gave uh, plenty of examples about this. So um, it's this look very good for creationists. Uh, why I say uh, the opposite? Why? Well, uh, let's look at some citation, some quotes, uh, sorry. This first quote is from uh, the book, uh, The Endogenous Retrovirus Handbook. And you can find here uh, the page uh, where I did find uh, this uh, citation, this quote. So uh, it's a young earth creation uh, quote. Uh, it's not uh, from a secular scientist. And the view of the author, of course, is similar to Danny, but I want to point out that even them 
say that most of ERVs are defective retroviral copies. And now we get to uh, a paper. This paper is cited, uh, is quoted in the book. Uh, so we can say it's still a quote from the work of Donny. And yes, uh, Donny is right. Uh, we do have elements that can promote uh, gene expression uh, and they are very important to us. But most of those uh, scientists uh, those um, function are in intragenetic uh, places. So they do not uh, work uh, as intended. They are uh, not uh, aiding us in any way. And they can be also uh, dangerous time to time. Uh, actually. So it's very important to note this. Uh, not every uh, ERV is, is useful. Uh, most of them are defective or they are in uh, non um, in places where they do nothing, basically. Let's See, last, uh, this is my last argument, cladistic. Uh, so um, you all know for sure what cladistic is. Uh, here you can see uh, baraminology, uh, that's uh, a phylogenetic tree uh, from uh, answers in Genesis. I do not know if this source is okay maybe uh, Donny has a better one, but you can see their baramin and how um, lineage work in the young F uh, model. And when we talk about uh, my model, well, here you can see the tree of life uh, for my side very very good uh it's different so when we look at uh, ERVs what we find and here you can see the result uh, it's taken from a paper uh, about old world monkeys we actually are in this clade uh, at least for my position so it's quite important i did not read the paper I was just interested in uh, the picture. So, conclusion. Here are my conclusion. The Vige hypothesis could be good if you can show evidence. The vast majority of ERVs seem to be inactive or damaged. Cladistic evidence, uh, for what I can tell, uh, does support my side. So, I at this point, I do not see any reason to think that Donny position is reasonable. But I'm open to being wrong. Thanks for watching. For any question, contact me. This is my YouTube channel. Very little, but it's growing.
and I hope to see you soon. All right. Thanks, Luca. Good job. You, you even got a comment on your lab coat. They said you should have a beaker behind you, maybe. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so I just want to remind everyone to tag me, redefine living, two words. Um, I will be looking in the chat, though. So if you do ask a question at Standing for Truth, I'm going to try to grab those two, but uh, no promises. So that said, uh, Brother Donnie, 15 minutes, whenever you're ready. All right. Thank you, Sam. Let me just get my slides up here real quick. And okay, here we go. Can somebody share my, just kidding. I'll share my own screen. So here we go. Well, let me do that real quick. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Okay. I'll hide this. Let me know if my audio and everything's coming in nicely. Yeah, just go full screen maybe, but everything sounds good. All right. Let's have some fun. I'll start my timer here. Luca, thanks so much for your opening. Lots of interesting points to address. And as a matter of fact, several that I'll address here in my opening statement. So endogenous retroviruses evidence for evolution. Donnie B versus Luca Medugno, debate number 98. Um, I've written a book on this, as, as I've uh, pointed out earlier, and I answer all of the, the common questions, challenges, objections regarding this, this topic. I'm currently working on a, a follow-up that uh, basically deals with very thoroughly all of the objections and challenges and just the repeating of talking points that I address directly in the handbook itself. I'll be uh, putting that all into a follow-up uh, follow book, Refuting the Critics. Again, the Endogenous Retrovirus Handbook is available on Amazon and you can find endless content on our Standing for Truth ministry. So the title of tonight's debate, Are Endogenous Retroviruses Good Evidence or Reasonable Evidence for Evolution? And first thing I want to point out that endogenous retroviruses, what are they? Well, they're very small pieces of DNA that are found within the genomes of many types of creatures. And the most important question to ask is, are these DNA elements the ancient remnants of past viral infections? Or are they created units of DNA function? And this is the question that my opening presentation will answer. Now, firstly, when it comes to the word evolution, Okay, are endogenous retroviruses good evidence for evolution? Well, what do we mean by evolution? If by evolution you mean dogs and wolves are related, well, we're not going to have a problem, okay? Because evolution, biological evolution just simply means changes in allele frequencies and populations over generations, okay? Change over time. People say, you know, phones have changed over time. Computers have changed over time. I'm not going to have any issues with that. But if by evolution you mean that dogs chimpanzees, humans, banana plants, and strawberries are related, well, that's the kind of evolution that we're going to have a disagreement over. That's the kind of evolution that is not scientific, and that is the one we're essentially debating here tonight in context of endogenous retroviruses. So the separate ancestry model, as compared to the universal common ancestry model that would say whales and strawberries are related through common ancestry, would suggest that God created distinct kinds of animals. Okay, the Bible clearly uh, tells us that God created Adam and Eve separate from any other form of life. So here's a basic diagram 
that you can find in a must-read book, Contested Bones, where we have humans separate from all other forms of life. Okay, I can stay. I can stay as close to home as possible and demonstrate through various uh, genetic-related arguments like the, the Y chromosome dissimilarity between humans and chimpanzees, mitochondrial DNA mutation rates, Y chromosomal uh, DNA mutation rates, DNA function, linkage blocks. I can demonstrate that humans are not related to any other form of life, specifically not related to chimpanzees. So if humans aren't related to chimpanzees, then that means they're definitely not related to strawberries and, and whales. So our model would suggest that in the beginning, God would have front-loaded the original created kinds, okay, humans, and then this would obviously apply universally among the original created archetypes. He would have front-loaded them with what's called created heterozygosity, which is just a technical way of saying design diversity. Okay, heterozygosity is a state of DNA diversity. And this makes sense both theologically and scientifically, because when God said to be fruitful and multiply, he didn't mean that to, to mean, you know, be fruitful and clone yourselves. So pre-existing heterozygosity makes sense. But how this applies to the endogenous retrovirus debate is the fact that God would have also front-loaded various classes of DNA elements, functional DNA elements, Irv sequences being one of those, which we're going to touch on here, okay? Also, since the DNA differences and DNA diversity is built in, okay, we don't need millions of years to explain the origin of species and new chromosomal combinations. Because simply through processes like recombination and gene conversion, you can get a great deal of morphological variability because there's an amazing amount of morphological adaptability built into each created kind. So just through the shuffling of these pre-existing DNA variants, you can get new uh, combinations of chromosomes, allelic variability quickly. Okay, so endogenous retroviruses, let's go over some of the details. Okay, firstly, I want to point out that when it comes to the structure of herbs that Luca touched on a little bit, okay, the structure of Irv sequences, they match modern retroviruses. For example, uh, think HIV, okay, where you have, I want to go to a diagram that I put in here, where you have the uh, LTRs on both ends of the retroviral DNA, you're going to have identical sequences known as the LTRs. Okay, those stand for long terminal repeats, which we understand are functional. In between the LTRs, we find the gag, the pole, now, the pole is what codes for what's called the reverse transcriptase. And then we also have the ENV, which is the envelope protein that codes for the envelope that makes up the body of the virus. And these structures are common in ERVs and retroviruses, which is precisely why evolutionists believe they are the ancient remnants of past viral infections, since they share so much similarity to exogenous retroviruses. Okay. And this is what. I am going to want to touch on, okay? Um, so because uh, Luca, evolutionists like Luca, assume that these herbs are the ancient uh, remnants of past viral infections, and they consider them to be genetic fossils that point to common descent, they will say, uh, as a main line of argument, that the chances of two herbs being inserted at the same exact location in separate organisms, let's say humans and chimpanzees, is very small. Okay, they will argue that the chance of a human and a chimpanzee being infected in the same exact spot by the same specific type of virus is far less than one in 10 million. And to them, this is highly unlikely. 
And of course, the more shared IRV sequences, the more unlikely it becomes that they're inserted independently. But again, that whole argument from statistical probability relies on the assumption that these really are the ancient remnants of past viral infections, as we can see here. Human endogenous retroviruses are expected to be the remnants of ancestral infections. Okay, so they represent 8% of the human genome. They are an important component of the human genome. Uh, according to the evolutionary model, they're incorporated into the genome through the invasion of infectious, exogenous retroviruses that basically would have happened um, millions of years ago. Uh, they look to them as, as fossil viruses. And again, uh, for the most part, they, uh, the evolutionary community will admit they occurred millions of years ago. Exogenous retroviruses are relics of exogenous retroviral infection of germ cells that result in integration of what's called proviral DNA into the host genome. And I've, I've got a whole uh, bunch of points in terms of the uh, details of endogenous retroviruses. What I want to move on to the, the important questions, okay? The important questions that I'm going to answer are why are the uh, why are there IRV sequences shared between the genomes of organisms? If viral-like sequences in the genomes of organisms are functional, why do they bear similarity to viral genetic material? What is the best explanation for the nested? So they'll look to what's called a nested hierarchical distribution of these elements, where more IRV-like sequences are found in similar locations between a human and a chimpanzee. And with fewer IRV-like sequences shared between what is assumed to be a more distant relative, like gorillas, uh, the orangutan, or even uh, mice. Okay, so, you know, Luca would look or appeal to what is called a family tree that he would interpret the uh, nested hierarchical patterns, let's say within primate genomes, in terms of their arrangement of these IRV-like sequences as, as reflecting common descent rather than separate ancestry. So I want to answer that question as well. And of course, can the separate ancestry model explain the data better than the common descent model. Okay, so here's an important detail. I want to focus on the placenta for a minute, okay? In the early stages of development, humans will develop what is called a placenta. And a placenta is a temporary organ that arises during pregnancy. This structure is absolutely vital. It's critical for ordinary and healthy pregnancy. It provides nutrition to the developing baby. It also helps uh, it get rid of waste. Now, for the placenta to work, though, this important structure needs to be connected to the baby. And an endogenous retrovirus is actually key to embryological development and placental function. The placenta secretes a protein that binds it to the embryo, which keeps the two connected for the next several months of development. We could not, we literally couldn't exist if we did not have endogenous retroviruses. I like to exist. Our award-winning moderator, Sam here, I believe likes to exist. Luca likes to exist. Okay, so if we have shared sequences that are involved in embryological development, well, guess what? Chimpanzees also require embryological development. They require uh, DNA elements functioning and determining cell types, gene expression, gene regulation, okay, acting in cell stress responses. So of course, we're gonna expect uh, shared sequences if these really are created units of DNA function, okay? So the DNA that makes up that protein is very similar to a region of a retrovirus that allows the virus to attach to its host cell. Without endogenous retroviruses, the placenta, which is critical to pregnancy and embryological development, would not work. We would basically not exist, okay? Because these functional DNA elements are essential for life. 
And endogenous retroviruses don't just assist in embryological development and embryonic immune systems. They also work in our immune systems after we are born. Our immune system pathways are dependent. They are literally dependent upon enzymes generated by endogenous retroviruses and herb-like elements. These so-called ancient remnants of past viral infections are safeguarding our bodies against microbes and other viruses. They are also participating in allowing for small-scale but significant changes in how the human body works in general. As a matter of fact, these many functional roles, okay, many of the functional roles of herb elements and retrotransposons are basically dependent upon their sequence similarity to exogenous retroviruses, the LTRs, the GAG, the pole, the ENV elements of it. Those are necessary components of the herb sequence in order for them to be able to carry out their job. Okay, this also comes down to the uh, what's called the junk DNA paradigm. Because herb sequences have been and still, for the most part, are assumed to be junk, evolutionary uh, leftovers, genomic fossils, viral fossils. Okay, so with the overturning of junk DNA comes the overturning of endogenous retroviruses as evidence for common descent. And we understand, actually, that uh, most of our genome has tremendous evidence for biochemical function or activity. And it was in 2012 that the ENCODE project came out with remarkable findings indicating that upwards of 80% of the human genome was active to some extent. Okay, and of course, the evolutionists have jumped uh, all over that and criticize it. They need to maintain junk DNA. Okay. And I address all that in my book. So here's just a few of the functions of non-coding DNA, regulating expression of genes, regulating uh, genome expression, maintaining genome integrity, work as regulatory elements during transcription and translation, controls the process of mRNA and protein formation, repairing DNA, aiding and folding and maintenance of chromosomes, controlling RNA editing and splicing, not predicted by the evolutionary model, okay? Acting as a mutational buffer, maintaining 3D structure, pseudogenes we now understand are necessary to sustain healthy life processes in the cell. Herbs, again, herbs are involved in, in antiviral function, tumor suppression, gene regulation, which I do want to uh, touch on, okay? So again, it turns out that one of the major functional responsibility uh, responsibilities of herb sequences is that they operate in the innate immune system. They literally perform an antiviral role. And I wanna to go to a paper here specifically right here, switching sides. How endogenous retroviruses protect us from viral infections. Okay, so they literally are our built-in, our built-in antiviral programs. They perform an antiviral role and they are valuable DNA elements that work considerably in the immune system of their host. The way that they systematically exercise their antiviral effect has to do with their sequence, resemblances to viral material. So again, without the nature of the herb sequence, the way that they're designed and structured, they could not actually carry out the significant job that they perform. We should be thanking God that they resemble exogenous retroviruses, okay? The properties of an herb sequence are absolutely necessary considering their fundamental roles in aiding the immune system. When it comes to explaining the functional roles associated with herb elements, okay, all we get is rescue devices, storytelling, and imagination. 
We had a PhD virologist, Dr. Dan Stern Cardinal, admit that they've never actually observed in real time empirically. There's no technical paper showing a non-functional endogenous retroviral-like sequence going from non-functional to something incredibly functional in determining cell types, in regulating genes, in the embryo, placental development, so on and so forth. So what I say to these rescue devices is uh, cool story, bro. So as I come up to the 15 minute mark, time really flies by. Last thing I wanna point out when it comes to nested hierarchies is as we can see, the evidence best suggests these are created units of DNA function. So if we share more with the chimpanzee than we do with a the mouse, there's no surprise there since humans and chimpanzees share more genetically in physiology, in morphology and anatomy anyways, than let's say between a human and, and a mouse. So, uh, and that's 15 minutes, time flies by and I am going to wrap it up there. Thank you so much. All right, thank you. Yeah, I kicked myself out. So you might have to take away that, uh, that award. So um, yeah, just want to remind everyone to tag me at Redefine Living. I am looking uh, very carefully over the chat. So if you guys do tag Standing for Truth, um, I'll still grab that and save those questions too. Try to make sure they're relevant if it's possible. Um, we've got questions for you, Luca, coming in, asking if you're married, what are you using your hair and things like that. So, uh, <laughs> so with that said, Luca, you ready for your, your rebuttal? You're going to rebut all that? You got eight minutes whenever you're ready okay uh give me a second i set my lock and okay so uh it was a good presentation and i do have a lot of questions and i do have uh, an argument to make so uh danny is right uh a lot of ERVs are really, really useful and they do resemble uh, viral infections. So that's a chicken uh, or egg problem. Uh, it can force a beach uh, or uh, an infection from uh, a virus. And uh, here you need to bring uh, evidence because in my presentation I did bring up uh, some evidence for what uh, for my story let's say that uh, I'm personally I did work uh, with uh, ERBs not uh, really ERBs I did work with the transposons uh, because I did create uh, GMOs when I was 18 years old, more or less. Uh, so I am familiar to the process. Of course, I was uh, in my high school years. Uh, I was not a doctor. I'm not a doctor even now. So uh, I was very young. But I did those kind of things. Uh, and it's very important to see uh, what's the evidence for uh, an hypothesis. Uh, we do understand how uh, transposons, so ERVs works. We do understand so well this process that we can use it to our advantage. Uh, 
Um, I don't know if you know, but we can create uh, animals with uh, human organs uh, and things like that, uh, plants with uh, impart bacteria that can kill uh, infestant uh, just like that. They produce they, their own uh, poison to kill off insects and things like that. So we do understand uh, the process. Uh, and we do have evidence for ERB's uh, insertion. I cited uh, corn, uh, but we have more example for it. Uh, for example, I did uh, talk uh, about this wheat potato plant a long time ago, I know. Uh, also, uh, the formation of uh, beneficial mutation on ERBs, I think that uh, the lizard example that uh, I used with Kent was a good one. We are observing the formation of a placenta. And it's quite relevant uh, because Danny was right. The placenta is fundamental for us. But what I, I want you to understand that not uh, every creature uh, needs one. And we are observing creatures uh, evolving uh, a placenta. And they have a placenta, they have not a placenta, they have something in between in the same species. So it's a process and we are observing it in real time. So uh, I want to focus uh, in my discussion over these things because it's important uh, when you have a hypothesis, it's important to bring evidence. And if I will, as if I put myself in the mind of a creationist, I will be thrilled uh, because I have a, an hypothesis. Uh, ERVs come from this uh, design uh, sequence. Good. I need to find the evidence for it. And if uh, young Earth creationist uh, view is right, we have uh, the means to uh, show that's true. Because if the flood was just 4,400 years ago, we can find the DNA of these people. It would be very, very devastating to my position to find uh, Noah's body or things like that. Just think about it. Uh, so I will wait for something like that. It will be very, very exciting. And if you are a creationist, I would advise you to put yourself on the line and go and find uh, evidence. Uh, go to the Middle East, Maybe not now, if the time is not good. We are uh, almost over with a pandemic, but uh, it's not a good time to make travels. But I will be very excited uh, 
if I will be a young earth creationist. We have an hypothesis, let's find the evidence. I do not see that, uh, for what I can tell, the evidence is still uh, on my side. Uh, on cladistic, it's very important. Uh, Donny is right. Um, we would expect some kind of uh, clades on uh, both uh, models, but a designer would not need to follow uh, evolutionary patterns. And that's my problem. If you look at ERBs, they give you a very a secular view. Uh, they follow uh, what evolution will be. And I think it's a problem. I can stop my rebuttal here. All right. Thanks, Luca. So, um, yeah. So, Donnie, are you ready for a rebuttal? Oh, I'm ready. I'm All ready. right. Well, we got eight minutes sharp. <laughs> all right go ahead. all right i'm gonna start my timer now and uh, i got a lot of visuals for this and this is going to be good so here we go uh luca started off he talked a lot about the vige with stand which stands for variation inducing genetic element hypothesis which is supported by the scientific data i've got paper after paper demonstrating that these transposable elements can actually generate variation novel variation through the, their ability to retro transposition to transpose throughout the genome, okay? So he finds it unconvincing, but uh, the hypothesis, the model is supported by the empirical scientific data. Problem is, Luca will have to show us how his position can explain the origin of retroviruses to begin with, since retroviruses require a host to replicate. It makes sense that they originated from within the genome of their host, of their respective host, since again, retroviruses require a host to replicate evolutionary scientists actually recognize this, which is why a lot of them, and I'll show slides on this, believe in what's called the escape hypothesis, that retroviruses have escaped from the cell rather than uh, originating from outside, okay? Luca talked about the uh, Koala retrovirus paper, which I'll get into as well. That is the one, uh, degradation and remobilization of endogenous retroviruses by recombination during the earliest stages of germ uh, line invasion. I wrote a lot about that in my book. Talked about uh, transposable elements in corn, and uh, it's no evidence for Luca because again, these transposable elements can be turned on, right? They're suppressed due to DNA methylation. They're turned back on, they move around, and they can lead to uh, variation. They can lead to uh, novel phenotypes. That information's built in though, okay? A lot of these DNA elements, they're in latent form. They're waiting to be revealed and manifested outwardly. Uh, Luca talked about function in intragenic, um, in intragenic regions, implying that they don't aid in our health in any important way. Well, I'm gonna need him to expand on that one because as I went over in uh, my opening statement, IRV sequences, without them, we couldn't exist. That's pretty essential, okay? They're involved in embryological development. Uh, they're involved in obviously the, the placenta, determining cell types, gene expression, uh, antiviral protectors cell stress responses, so on and so forth, okay? Some are harmful, yes, since mutations can take a good ERV sequence into something disease-causing. Some jumping genes can jump into the wrong place and that will um, result in disease. For example, if one of these uh, transposable elements were to jump inside a functional gene, that could um, 
that could lead to to harm. Okay, so I do want to point out the um, argument from the koala, for example, because as we know, um, retroviral sequences they have RNA as their uh, genetic material. And what they can do is they can reverse transcribe this into DNA, okay, which is necessary for integration. And that's how they get in incorporated into the host genome. Some endogenous retroviruses can make copies of themselves and insert throughout the genome, all right? They can literally move around. And this capability of moving around the genome actually turns out, we read about this in um, specifically the paper that he mentioned in his opening statement, okay? This turns out that um, it can disrupt the incorporation of retroviral DNA into the genome, all right? This is a significant function because it can literally disrupt the endogenization process of retroviruses. This is also one of the numerous explanations for, again, why herb elements look the way they do. Their similarity to retroviral genetic material makes sense because of their functional mechanism. When it comes to the hierarchies, okay, yes, overall, we're going to expect more of these ERV sequences or the transposable elements uh, between, if they're created units of DNA function, between humans and chimpanzees and between humans and, and a mouse. Just stand back, okay? You can see a relative hierarchy. As a matter of fact, you can see a relative hierarchy when it comes to uh, design modes of transportation. Sedans share more with SUVs than sedans do with, let's say, a, a tractor trailer or a bicycle, okay? These groups within groups within groups patterns are simply characteristic of of design, but you find inconsistency after inconsistency with the hierarchy. Okay, notice this paper, a HERV-K provirus in chimpanzees, bonobos, and gorillas, but not in humans. These observations provide very strong evidence that for some fraction of the genome, chimpanzees, bonobos, and gorillas are more closely related to each other than they are to humans. So even when it comes to the um, the hierarchies, there's inconsistencies. You could look to convergent evolution, again, the Y chromosome, incomplete lineage sorting, so on and so forth. So here we go. Jumping genes generating diversity. The ability of transposons to increase genetic diversity together with the ability of the genome to inhibit most TE activity results in a balance that makes transposable elements an important part of the genome. Here's an important part right here. I want to focus on this uh, part of the citation. If the accidental infection, and remember, there's no observable evidence for how this can could take place, okay? They'll oftentimes try and say that uh, the herb elements have contributed new genes, like the syncytin, which they say is a co-opted ENV protein. I mean, how sweet are the retrovirus, right? Hey, host, you know, you can borrow these genes, and with them, apparently now mammals can come about because notice if the accidental infection of a mammalian ancestor by an exogenous retrovirus had never occurred the placenta and the mammals that produce it including humans would have never existed so luca keeps saying there's no evidence here's evidence what more do you want okay human endogenous retroviruses herbs have recently been suggested as mediators of normal biological processes there's a family of retrovirus known as herb h and they strongly influence our growth, development, and our genetic code, okay? And um, they have a massive, these herb uh, sequences have massive impact on embryological development, gene expression, and co-option just isn't going to cut it, 
again, all I got to say to this uh, rescue device of co-option or the herb elements, you know, um, lent us some of their um, functional sequences to, to be highly beneficial in, in us growth development and so on and so forth you know a cool story bro because <laughs> I'm, I'm into empirical evidence retroviral promoters in the human genome scientists identify new beneficial function of endogenous retroviruses and immune response literally paper after paper that's why i wrote a whole book on it 200 papers or 200 pages with just dozens and dozens and dozens of papers all throughout okay notice this although te's have in general been regarded as non-functional junk so they'll admit that they've regarded these TEs as non-functional junk. Notice this. Studies have revealed that TEs, transposable elements, have had a substantial and sometimes beneficial impact on host genomes in several ways. Overall, our results provide direct evidence for what? Retrotransposons in actively shaping cell type and species-specific chromatin architecture. Again, paper after paper. Notice this one. Far from being junk DNA, the pervasive retrotransposons that populate the genome have a powerful uh, capacity to influence genes and chromatin. Um, LTRs uh, have functional roles. The, the shared mutations, we understand there's uh, mutational hotspots. If the genome is mostly functional, which we know the evidence suggests, then that means there's more hotspots in the genome that exist. Okay, so there's going to be a lot of commonly affected areas between humans and chimpanzees since most of the genome reflects functionality and so yes within the herb sequence we would expect that even some of the mutations are shared but that brings me to my final point here as i come up to eight minutes okay the bigger question is what is the origin of genetic variation genetic diversity evolution has looked to mutations we look to created nuclear heterozygosity which means that which the evolutionist points to as a shared quote-unquote mutation may not actually be a mutation it may just reflect the functional requirements of the respective organisms herb sequences are not good evidence for common descent and that's eight minutes i yield All right. Great job. So we are going to take a two minute break really quick. Uh, if you guys want to go get some water, do whatever that's going to do, whatever you want to do. So um, while you guys are doing that, I guess I'm going to sing to you now. I'm not I'm not going to sing to you. So um, so it looks like looks like John logical, plausible, probable is having an after show. You guys aren't going to want to miss that. Um, so if you guys don't mind, go ahead and hit that thumbs up if you haven't already and subscribe. If you are wondering how you can support the ministry uh, in the video description, there are a few options. Uh, but really, the best thing you can do is just by hitting that thumbs up button and, you know, share this video out, these uploads on social media. It really helps with the algorithms or after these uploads come back and leave a comment. So, um, yeah, so there's a few streams coming up. There's a debate between. Uh, T Rock, who's who's awesome, and T Jump, so that'll definitely be uh, something to watch. We have a debate coming up about Second Peter. What's the best exegesis of Second Peter, uh, chapter two twenty? There's a Bible translation debate, a King James verses debate. Uh, that's going to be coming up pretty soon. I think um, later on this week or next next week, we have another. Uh, Another debate here with Kent Hoven coming up. What is the best evidence for evolution? And uh, another Bible translating debate coming up here also. And um, yeah, hopefully Professor McQueen won't be too long before he comes and 
does another stream. You guys, there's playlists. There's tons of content, a lot of stuff in those playlists, uh, past debates. Uh, so, yeah, go check it out and, and share it out. If you want to help the channel grow, that's what we can do. So uh, with that said, it looks like we are into our 40-minute open discussion. You guys ready? You, you want me to pick a topic or are you just going to go for it? I think I think this Google brought up uh, a corn, and uh, Donnie, I think you said that was a corny line of evidence. <laughs> that was more than a corny joke. <laughs> yes, uh, I think that corn, corn is a good one. Uh, actually, there is a reason uh, because we think that we can demonstrate that those insertion really happened. Uh, first of all, we have uh, archaeology. Um, supporting that because we do know uh, what was the more ancient plant and that was the Teosinde. Uh, and it's important because uh, when we are talking about archaeology... Actually, Luca, let me just ask you a clarifying mm -hmm. question. Do you believe that my model on endogenous retroviruses suggests that there are no true events where exogenous retroviruses make their way into the germ cell and are passed on? Well, it's possible to have both, but if we are talking about uh, my model, we have uh, a mechanism to insert those. If we are looking to your... Um, well, in, your, in, in my uh, book, Luca, just for another clarification, I do talk, I have a whole section on... Uh, fixed herbs versus unfixed herbs. So herbs mm -hmm. that are pre-existing and created versus herbs that are the result of um, the infection of, of an exogenous retrovirus that infected in the reproductive cell lines and was passed on. Do you remember what that prediction is? Yes, uh, that we will not observe uh, fixed ones. And that's my point. Uh, the one with the Teosinte was fixed. And we can demonstrate that was a real event because if you look to archaeology, we have a sequence and we are, do not are, are you saying are you saying the transposable element in the maze example was fixed and functional? It got fixed after it, the event. Okay, so it got fixed. Is it functional? Yes. It wasn't, yes. And, and you watched it in real time get fixed in corn, right? No, we did observe the process through archaeology. Because if we know where we start and we know where we get, we know that event takes place. Okay, but this um, jumping gene, this transposable element in, in the maze, in the corn that led to variation, it mm -hmm. had a pre-existing function? It was not there. Because I, I, I read through the paper and it looked like the transposable element was silenced. Because remember, a lot of these transposons, they, through DNA methylation, they're silenced or turned off. But due to environmental trigger, or stressor, the appropriate stressor, they can be activated. They can, you know, a lot of these tra uh, retrotransposons have a, have a promoter in them. And so they can move 
around the genome from one chromosomal location to another, generating function, generating variation that can be passed on. Yes, but you need uh, an infection to have that element. And we know that that takes place. If you don't like uh, maize, we can talk about this with both the plant. In that case, we also know the kind of bacteria that infected the plant. Well, we know so well this process that we design uh, GMOs for meat. We I, 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 well, and, and for the audience sake, GMO stands for genetically modified yes. organisms. So, right, we have human intervention here, human manipulation. But I'm curious, how does this help the case for ape to man evolution for humans and chimpanzees sharing a common ancestor? Right, how does this help the case since plants, as far as I know, <laughs> don't need functional DNA elements for embryological development. Plants oftentimes have a lot of uh, variation, built-in redundancy due to the environments that they exist in. There's a lot of silenced transposable elements that can be turned on for adaptive episodes. But when it comes to humans and chimpanzees supposedly sharing a common ancestor, okay, how does that help your case there? I mean, where do we see in real time. Well, I'm, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. Don, I'm using the examples that I'm more familiar with because I work with GMOs and I was in a school uh, that was uh, teaching uh, agriculture. So those are the examples I'm more familiar with, but we do have example uh, of those even in uh, uh, mammals and things like that. Of course, plants are a good one because we can trace uh, the infection. In the case of the sweet potato plant, we also know the kind of bacteria, so we do know the process. And they are still eukaryotes, so they share a lot of process with us. So okay, it's so not that far-fetched example. Okay, so let me. We are same. Yes, I, I just don't find the um, example from from Mays. I read the paper. It, it does, it's not convincing to me because again, DNA methylation. Okay, uh, the, the epigenome can essentially keep a lot of these pre-existing functional transposable elements silenced until they need to be called upon through environmental uh, stimuli and environmental stressors. But when it actually comes to, let's say, mammals like us or the chimpanzees, because typically the evolutionists want to say that chimpanzees and humans are undoubtedly related because of shared herb sequences or shared alu sequences or shared, um, you know, these various classes of retrotransposons. So I'm very curious what your best example is over the last few months of you reading my book and studying. Okay. An example wow. like this, where these herbs, human endogenous retrovirus, are playing important roles in what? Embryological development, where notice this. If this supposed um, accidental infection of a mammalian ancestor by an exogenous retrovirus had not occurred, the placenta and the mammals that produce it, including humans, would have never existed. I want to see a real-time example. Okay, take the lab. I mean, you, you, you have mice. 
you know, subject mice retrotransposons to mutations or whatever it takes and, and show me a real-time example of one of these uh, endogenous retroviral-like sequences going from non-functional or just altering their pre-existing function to the point where now without them, we couldn't exist. Can you provide that and, and take your time, Luca? I know I said Yes, the lizard one. Uh, we are observing uh, a lizard developing uh, a placenta. So it's a very relevant example. Wait, 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 wait. Um, it, 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 I'm talking about endogenous retroviruses or other classes of retrotransposons. Yes, uh, we are talking about that because uh, the sequence is very similar to that, uh, the Sintichin uh, one. So yes, we are doing this kind of discussion and we are observing that kind of change in real time because those uh, lizards, uh, as I said to Kent, they are well, they're not evolving placentas due to endogenous retroviruses, though. Yes, and so we are. can observe how they got integrated. We do know the process so well, we can use it. Is, is it your position that an endogenous retrovirus integrated into the lizard genome and became functional in the embryo? And in placental development? I cannot remember the exact uh, uh, event, but I remember that was... Right, because, well, I, I've read through all those papers, and what it looks like is within, and here's the th I don't want to spend too much time on it, because, again, it's not endogenous retroviruses that are involved in these adaptive episodes. But it looks like, I believe, it's these uh, variety of skink species. And within the, the skink species, depending on their environment, they actually have a dual reproductive system where they can hatch eggs or they have function in terms of, of, of a placenta. And depending on what environment they're in, that will determine what reproductive system is is manifest it's kind of like how gm builds their cars with both a heater and an air conditioner so if i'm driving a gm vehicle in alaska well i'm probably going to have the heater on predominantly right dominantly but if i go to the deserts of australia then i'm probably going to use the air conditioner because cars are built with dual temperature control systems so once I turn on the air conditioner in another environment, the evolution is going to say, look, this vehicle is evolving the ability to have an air conditioner. No, it was already there. It was just turned off. And now it's being turned on in the appropriate environment. And that's what we see with these so-called um, skink examples of a placenta. And you can yeah. respond to that. But again, it, it's not anything to do with endogenous retroviruses. So I do want to make sure that yeah, you're... This is the case why we can, we do have... Uh, example in the middle with a partial placenta because we also have that well because <laughs> here's a, if a certain skink species is predominantly using one reproductive mode well what happens over time is the other reproductive mode is is suppressed to the point where they can even lose it so you're saying this is something in the middle when it, in fact it's it's an example of loss. So you, you know how they say if you don't use it, you lose it. <laughs> so just like if you have a vehicle that you're just um, mostly in Alaska or some really cold conditions, you're using the heater all the time. You're not using the air conditioner. And over time, that air conditioner due to underuse might actually break down. It's, it's already there, but either one can be revealed more 
or to the point where one can even be lost. So, um, but it, it, you know, and we can agree to disagree there, but I really, really, uh, Luca, just want to see an example of an Irv element that is, I, I guess a basic question and take as long as you need. I know I'm trying to, cause I'm trying to get as many clarifying questions as, as I can. Okay. An Irv sequence today, you, you can go in the lab or observe it in real time. Doesn't matter. You know, you even use, um, mice. I want to see an Irv element. Okay. An exogenous retrovirus that is integrated in the germ cell line. It's been passed on What the evolutionists typically say, as you know, um, Luca is over millions of years after these, these infections occur and they're integrated, these sequences will be cleaned up through mutations. And then the infectious part of the retrovirus will be eliminated. Right. And oftentimes they'll say like in the case of syncytin, that the Irv elements, will contribute new genes that can be utilized by the host for functional purposes. I get it. It's a nice story. I talk a lot about it in, in my book, but show me a real-time example. Show me empirical evidence of this actually happening, of, a, of an ERV sequence going from non-functional or altering its function or donating its, its pre-existing uh, properties to function in the embryo, to function in determining cell types, to function in the immune system. So that's all I'm, I'm asking for, Luca. And take as much time as you need to, to answer that. Go ahead. Okay. So if you want a nice example of an experiment, we can have any GMOs because the process is that process. Basically, you get uh, an element. Of course, you modified it to pick up uh, the sequence, uh, DNA sequence you need, but it's still this process and you put it in the organisms. So the best one to do that are obviously plants, but you can do it even with animals. I, I've seen... Uh, are you saying it's been done in, in animals? They've genetically modified an animal to the point where a uh, pre-existing herb sequence became functional? Well, yeah. No, no, no. They put uh, a, in, an entire sequence inside the pig and the pig changed and the change were inherited. So we know that process can work. Well, and in pigs, I just finished uh, a, a lecture series in virology where the lecturer from, I think, Columbian University, Columbia University, he pointed out that they're removing the existing Irv sequences. I don't know if this is what you're talking about. I'm just trying to follow all of your arguments, Luca, so I address them all. They removed all the pre-existing Irv sequences to see if they're there for a reason. And it actually turns out that, that yes, there is offspring, pig offspring, but they are in an unhealthier state than they were prior to the Irv sequences being removed. Is, is that the no, example you're looking to? Yeah, about the... something different because what I've seen, uh, I've seen uh, pigs so uh, modified so much that they start uh, growing human organs inside them. So I've seen- okay, so uh, is it your position uh, that through, through genetic modification, that there's a real-time yes, example how, of Yes, and how you do that, you insert a ERV sequence into the pig. 
and okay. the beak will. Okay, I just want to follow you. So, so they, humans, insert an herb sequence into a pig, into the pig genome, and then what happens? A transposons, more likely. Okay, so a transposable element, they integrate it in, into the pig genome, and then what happens? Yes, they start growing uh, human organs inside them. And I've seen uh, evidence for it with my eyes. So we know that process can work because we do all the time. I, I don't see, a Luca, I'm sorry, because we have limited time. I got to get slightly mm -hmm. aggressive. I don't see how this example of human intervention through genetic modification, apparently they're inserting, and I'd like you to send me the paper so I can read it myself, where they're inserting an endogenous retrovirus into the pig genome, and now mm -hmm. subsequent generations, we have pigs growing new organs, is what you're saying? No, no, uh, different organs, because yeah, what uh, they were designed for, they were designed to uh, supply uh, fresh organs to the nature's. So you will grow pigs with organs. Uh, well, did you want to share screen and pull this up so I can see it? Uh, I cannot pull this up because I've seen it with my eyes and it was quite a long ago. Uh, I do not have a paper right now. But I'd I like to see that I've seen those things myself. Okay, so pigs already have um, the ability through their pre-existing retrotransposons right, to produce a, a baby pig from zygote to, to baby, okay, ba based on their functional DNA elements. So if a scientist is now manipulating the, the pig genome for some kind of desired outcome by inserting a, an herb sequence into it, which again, I want to see the, this paper, okay, well, I, I don't understand how this genetic... Um, modifying example helps your case. I mean, we see that the evolutionists are saying millions of years ago, okay, the accidental infection of an exogenous retrovirus that was infected in the right way to be passed on to subsequent generations. Okay, eventually mutations cl cleared out that uh, the infectious part of it, and then somehow adopted a novel function in the embryo to the point where we, we couldn't exist. This pig example well, the pigs are already existing. So whatever happened through genetic modification is not creating anything new where now the pig needs to survive. And, and this is the example that I'm asking for. And mm -hmm. I've already heard from PhD scientists that these examples don't exist. We have to infer it, right? Like saying, well, the endogenous retrovirus contributed new genes, like syncytin for, for the embryological development. So, you know, that, that, that's all I'm asking for is a real-time example of, a, of an endogenous retrovirus um, viral-like sequence becoming functional to this extent, essential. Go ahead, Luca. Okay. As I said, uh, you cannot use a single example. It will be very unlikely to observe something like that in nature. What we can do, we can observe things happened in the past. I think that the sweet potato plant is one of the best examples for it because 
we do know what happened we do know what was the uh, infector uh, sorry maybe it's a wrong term uh, it was a an but you just admitted that you never seen this transposable element integrate you're inferring it from correct me if i'm wrong you let me finish donny what i'm telling you we can uh, observe this process in the past and we do know enough of this process to replicate it today and doing things like gmos that's how well we can understand it yeah i'm just gonna have to um we'll have to leave it up to the audience i don't find an example of, of gmo genetically modified organisms that and again we need to see the paper i, I want to uh you know look into it a little bit um but even what, with what you're saying is true that that's not um an answer to to the question that, that i'm asking it, it's not impressive that scientists i mean we see it with with the the phoenix uh virus experiment where through manipulation from scientists they were able to produce a a, a virus from from a deactivated virus okay well i mean yeah humans through, through human intervention we can do a whole lot of things that's not showing that it that it happened in nature it's also not showing how a non-functional endogenous retrovirus through a series of mutations can become something as, as important in determining cell types or embryological developments. Well, my question to you here, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this paper, inconsistencies with the hierarchy, a HERV-K provirus in chimpanzees, bonobos, and gorillas, but not in humans. So although there is a hierarchy generally, we do find certain DNA elements in their placement, the way that they followed into, where it looks like, apparently, according to this distribution or this family tree, chimpanzees, bonobos, and gorillas. Okay, so, and um, these observations provide very strong evidence that for some fraction of the genome, chimpanzees, bonobos, and gorillas are more closely related to each other than they are to humans. But even though chimpanzees are supposedly our closest cousin. Uh, so, so there are some inconsistencies in the hierarchy. Uh, Luca, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I do know, do not know the example, this example in particular. I do know uh, that time to time uh, we get those kind of things. Science is all about uh, finding new things. So we need to improve step by step. Uh, when we find a problem, we need to find a solution or a better hypothesis. I do not know what the explanation, the proposed uh, explanation for this inconsistency is. But for the most part, you would agree with me, uh, ERVs paint out uh, a picture that resembles a lot my uh, theory. No, so, because, again, no. no, because, as I've pointed out, without uh, retroviruses here on my slide, we would not have placentas and we would not be bearing live young. We would not exist. Herbs are expressed during human embryo, uh, embryonic development. We understand that they're functional again in the immune system. If we didn't have endogenous retroviruses, the pre-existing ones, I mean, we see it in that koala example. 
that we have new endogenous retroviruses. And what the pre-existing endogenous retroviruses are doing is they are through retrotransposition and, and recombination is, is they are disrupting the new endogenous, endogenous retroviruses and, and disabling them. So they're not harmful anymore. So we have, again, these pre-existing fixed herbs acting in the immune system, acting to prevent exogenous retroviruses from becoming endogenous. Or if they do become endogenous, then those pre-existing functional herbs are working to dis disrupt or disable them from um, causing harm. So therefore, if we find a relative hierarchy in, say, primates, that's no surprise. Because if they're created units of DNA function, of course, humans and chimpanzees are going to share some. But I just showed you a paper where although there is a relative hierarchy, there are inconsistencies to the hierarchy as well. And, and that's okay. the, the problem I have. Go ahead, Luca, take your time. Okay, so uh, I want to ask you a, que a relevant question on that. I do not know how much we have to end the discussion because I want to ask you one particular thing. Uh, yeah, because go ahead. Okay, first of all... Um, so we do observe uh, novel insertion in koala. That's good. And they change uh, the sequence of those ERVs. Uh, you are familiar with uh, the structure uh, of proteins? Yes. Okay. So uh, it's possible if you scramble uh, the information inside those uh, pieces of DNA to get uh, protein with a different form. Can you repeat that last part, Luca? If uh, you are scrambling uh, those sequences as uh, written in the paper, you can get to a pseudogene or something like that with a different shape of a protein if you are scrambling the, the content of the string of DNA. If you're scrambling the string of DNA, you are going to, what, what, what's your question? If you can get a protein, uh, maybe a uh, less bigger one but with a different shape uh, i was asking if you were uh, a variation of a familiar to with the structure of uh, the protein uh, you know when you buy build the protein you have the sequence then you have uh, the secondary structure uh, alpha or beta sheet and then you have um bonds with sulfur i if i, I right but luca how, how does this help you uh, okay but, but what's the to... relevance to this because again we have limited time and i really need to you're in the affirmative tonight are endogenous mm -hmm. retroviruses good evidence for evolution and you know yes it's relevant i don't, I don't see how it is because i don't see you addressing any of the differentiating lines of evidence here because if you are point. scrambling those units of dna you will eventually get something that works maybe not every time not at all are, are you saying maybe can. through this process that you're talking about we'll get a pre-existing yes. endogenous retrovirus that that functions in a beneficial way yes 
well, <laughs> it's a just so story. What we see today is these pre-existing uh, endogenous retroviruses in the koala genome. They have the functional ability to disrupt the process of retroviral invasion. That's what we see. Pre-existing fixed herbs disrupting the endogenization process of infectious retroviruses in the koala genome. So again, we have the fixed pre-existing ones that are functional and beneficial and the ones that are um, newly endogenized or just exogenous retroviruses that are infecting. It's the pre-existing ones that, that are working to fight them off. I, I don't see yeah. how that uh, helps your case. But yeah, you still have an insertion because you still have that insertion. I've admitted there is those sequence, you will no longer have func functioning uh, viral proteins uh, from that, but you still have the insertion, right? <laughs> but it's it's disabled. So the assertion, the insertion is going to be there, but it's not going to be of harm to the organism. That's the point. The pre-existing ERV sequences are acting in fighting off the harmful effects of infectious retroviruses. So when they disable them, yes, now they're disabled, they're no longer harmful, and probably over time, selection will remove this junk. And, th and that's another problem I have with your model is in my opening statement, I covered uh, the fact that there's significant evidence for genome-wide activity, let's say between 60 and 80%. But your side, and I'm not sure, I don't wanna put words in your mouth, Luca, but uh, from engaging your side, you guys wanna say, well, most of that activity is just noise, or it's spurious, but why in the world over millions of years of selection, why would evolutionary processes keep all of that junk around if it's just noise? Because all it's gonna do is muck up cellular systems. It's just gonna be wasteful of energy and resources. Uh, what's your position on that, Luca? To be fair, I just think that scientists time to time just have a very bad sense of humor to call <laughs> that DNA junk and that was uh, not the right call. I just think that scientists are blissfully unaware of this discussion. So they do very peculiar stuff like calling uh, some uh, chromosome Eve or uh, things like that. They just don't care. So how much would you and say then? So are, are, are you saying that this activity, this biochemical activity, all of this evidence for um, you know function in these non-coding regions of, of the genome in terms of regulation expression, are, are, is it your position that this is useful activity and not just spurious and noise? I think that if you keep uh, that unit of DNA, something must do. Of course, you will have dangerous part of DNA or things like that. But if you are functioning, you need to put uh, that DNA to some use because you need energy to replicate that DNA and things right. like that. So well, and, 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 and that's the problem with those that want to say that this is mostly just noise. And it sounds like from your position, you're saying that it's probably not just noise because again, um, a, a, the energy requirements, a lot of energy is, is, is required. It's an intensive process to, you know, build that RNA chain 
And so it, it wouldn't really make, but plus there should be evolutionary mechanisms that are, that are suppressing all of this junk. But if, it, but if, if it's your position that it is mostly active and there for a reason, then don't you see I how that contradiction model, yeah, go ahead. A, a couple of things, first yeah. of all. Yeah, uh, but I think that organisms like mammals and us are, have a more refined genome because we are, we do have a lot of mechanisms to prevent some errors and things like that. But if you look to a genome of an amoeba, you will find a very huge genome for a very small animal. Now, I want to ask you a thing because I think we are almost at the end of this. Yeah, I was just going to. Hold, don't lose your thought. I was just going to say we have about just just under um, eight minutes left. So if you guys wanted to stay yeah. on topic or try something, I want to ask you a particular thing um, about sure, region. About so uh, you were telling me that we do have evidence for beaches because I did not say anywhere that. Uh, to be clear, uh, if we look at genome from humans uh, near the flood we would see those pre-viral elements we do have an example for that so you're saying at the time of the flood with the arc archetypes that would have been more heterozygous more heterozygous at that time than today since there's been shifts in heterozygosity to homozygosity a loss in some of these functional DNA elements. Are you asking for evidence for organisms in the past having more of these ERV sequences? No, uh, it's a different thing. Uh, if you read the paper, it was telling that in the past, in theory, um, of course, it's not a theory, it's an hypothesis, but let me slide that. Uh, we would uh, see those elements, pre-viral elements that originated uh, viruses afterwards. So we do have evidence for these elements not degraded and evidence for a perfect, let's say that, genome, because if your view is correct, we would be able to find it because even pre-flood uh, humans, we are talking about an event uh, 4,000 and something years ago. So DNA, it will be not degraded at all. Okay, so we accumulate, in, in humans accumulate roughly 100 new mutations per person per generation. The mutation rate is quite fast in Y chromosome, mitochondrial DNA, um, you know, biparentally inherited DNA. Within our DNA is ERV sequences, and they're also subject to mutations. They're, they're subject to a lot of nearly neutral mutations. So even your ERV sequences that function in the embryo, for example, although that's essential, if they're hit with a, an effectively neutral mutation, it is harmful in the same way that, you know, rust on the engine of a car isn't just going to destroy the car right away. It builds up. So yeah, we do have mutations that are building up in the genome and building up in pre-existing ERV sequences. So the genomes we sequence today, the ERV sequences that we see today, they have been hit with a lot of mutations. Uh, 
So they are a lot more degraded than, say, 4,500 years ago. But I don't know how you expect me to show you the genetics of humans right after the flood, where they have herb sequences that have less mutations than today, where they're more in a pristine state. It sounds like you're asking me to show you an example of, of a, an original herb sequence that was front loaded and therefore had no mutations. Is that what you're asking to see? Yes. I, and for what I can tell, it's quite easy. Find a corpse of someone really close to Noah or his uh, sons, analyze his DNA and find the evidence for <laughs> yeah, but, his evidence. Yeah, but look at the examples we have of ancient DNA exist in what? Denisovans, Neanderthals. Neanderthals, for example, were the most inbred people group that ever existed. They have these massive stretches of identical letters, which means they have these massive stretches of what's called homozygosity. They were 40% less fit than modern humans. They accumulated a lot of deleterious mutations because of their environment, because of inbreeding. And so if I'm going to show you uh, examples from ancient DNA, well, Neanderthals aren't going to help since they were highly inbred and mutated and degenerate. So I don't think we have any um, examples of ancient DNA from non-inbred groups like Neanderthals. But there is no reason to uh, such a findings to be impossible. Oh, yeah, we no, know no uh, for sure that the son of Noah lived to be 300. So we should, it should be possible to find such a sample or not. Well, see, here's the thing. The ancient DNA that we're most likely to retrieve is going to be from some of these side branches that lived in the appropriate conditions that can preserve the DNA enough where it can even be reliable in terms of sequencing. And that seems to be the case with Neanderthals because all the genetic sequences that, that we have seem to nest within that Neanderthal group. But again, that Neanderthal group was highly uh, degenerated. So if we add an example of an early Neanderthal or we add an example of let's say uh, Heidelbergensis maybe, um, that may have been less degenerated, then we may be able to sequence that genome if we had it and determine, oh, you know, here's some herb sequences that probably existed in them that don't exist today because we've lost a lot of diversity, right? Um, so it, it, that is a good question. But before time runs out, if I could, Luke, I did want to ask you a question here that applies to the VIGE hypothesis, variation-inducing genetic element hypothesis. So I have a number of um, articles and papers where the uh, secular community, for example, here, where did viruses come from? Let's talk science. Viruses might have come from broken pieces of genetic material inside early cells. The, uh, these pieces were able to escape their original organism and infect another cell. In this way, we evolved into viruses. So essentially we have the escape hypothesis from the evolutionary community that's saying, yes, a lot of these viruses may have actually come from cells, may have actually come from the genome rather than from outside. So are you familiar with, with this uh, model? Are you, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Go ahead. Yes, uh, it's an hypothesis and it can be also true, of course, but we need to remember that we can also get uh, things like protocells from experiments 
like the one done by David Dreamer, so it's not the only hypothesis. It's possible to get that from pieces of cells? Yes, potentially, if you have a cell broken down. A virus is a very, really, really um, simple um, structure. It has an envelope well, and a well, Luca, if, if I could, or DNA inside it. If I could, because you're you're criticizing the Vige hypothesis. I've seen other evolutionary biologists as well criticize the Vige hypothesis. But we have in the secular literature, right? Here's a paper: viral evolution, um, primordial cellular origins, and late adaptation to uh, parasitism. So we have these evolutionists on YouTube that are criticizing the Vige hypothesis, saying that that's crazy. But we actually have this uh, scene in, uh, in your own secular literature. And they're even pointing out, for example, here, here's a question I have for you. The virus first hypothesis states that viruses predated cells and contributed to the rise of cellular life. Okay. This is not a young earth creation source, of course. Contrastingly, all known viruses need a cellular host to replicate thus necessitating the existence of cells uh, before virus survival. That's exactly what we're saying in terms of our model, right? Obviously, there's some differences because I would look to the uh, pre-existing fixed functional herbs as being created units of DNA function, and then the unfixed herbs that are uh, harmful, disease-causing, and non-functional, I'd, I'd see those as uh, exogenous retroviruses that actually did uh, integrate, okay, through vertical transmission. But my question to you is, how do you address the problems that are put forth in these uh, secular papers that say, yes, the best case scenario or a good case scenario is that retroviruses came from within the genome since retroviruses require a host to replicate in the first place. So how do you address the, the, that issue? So there is well, a hold on, Luca, be before you answer that, I just want to let you guys know that we are out of time. Um, it doesn't matter to me. I don't know how punctual you want to be. So, of course, Luca, you'll, you'll be able to answer that. And then if you guys okay. want to be, just wrap it up in a few more minutes. So, uh, let's be quick. Uh, those are two hypotheses. First of all, it's quite different from the Vige uh, hypothesis. And I said that the Vige hypothesis could be good if you bring evidence for it. I was not criticizing that much. I have other problems with the paper, but I do not think we have. Well, Luca, some of the, and I just want you to answer this question as time runs out. One of the best lines of evidence is the same observation that the secular papers are pointing out that retroviruses require a host to replicate. And therefore the question is what came first, the host or the retrovirus? Well, obviously the host, this fits our model. God front loads the original created kinds with pre-existing functional DNA differences, genetic diversity, and uh, variation-inducing genetic elements. And from herbs, lines, signs, okay, we get um, RNA viruses that essentially are bad, harmful. And then eventually, I mean, they can move around the genome, causing harm, or then they can cross species, and bam, you got a fully infectious retrovirus. So, so one of the best lines of evidence is that fact. So if, if you want to reject the Vige hypothesis, how do you address that basic question? The basic question is, 
How can retroviruses originate from outside if retroviruses require a host to replicate in the first place? So just that question, I want to hear you answer. Yes, as I said, we did uh, observe in experiment from David Dreamer the formation of protocells with gene expression. So it's not the only possibility. We can have a form of life without a cell and we can have an adaptation after that. Or okay, so are, are you assuming have... that are you assuming that this protocell mm -hmm. through further adaptive episodes mm -hmm. over time you'll get a retrovirus? Yeah, it will be possible, <laughs> why not? You know, Luca, <laughs> and, and I mean this in all uh, in all fun. I just want to put this full screen. <laughs> this, I find every answer that you've given tonight is just a lot of story time, you know, and mm -hmm. because here's the thing. Tr truth is important. And the evolutionary community and the YouTube atheists, they just want to keep saying Irv sequences, the best evidence for evolution. But yet after debate, after debate, after debate, and you've even got, you know, PhD scientists admitting, no, you know, we have to assume over millions of years through maybe proto cells, we get retroviruses or somehow co-option takes place. And now an Irv sequence without it, we couldn't exist. I mean, I don't personally see why you find that to be convincing. It's just a lot of story time to me. And I don't mean that to be insulting, I just believe truth is important. And these Irv sequences function in so many incredible ways. We didn't even touch on a fraction of their amazing functional roles. For example, their, their role in tumor suppression, where through viral mimicry, which requires their sequence similarity to exogenous retroviruses, they can be turned on and the immune system can target that cell with more destruction and, and kill a tumor, essentially, through the help of what's called the P53 protein, which is the guardian of, of the cell. It's this relationship where they work together. I mean, that, like, this is some amazing, you keep asking for evidence and it's like, I don't know what, what, what more evidence are, are you looking for, uh, Luca? Take your time, uh, thoughts on that. Okay, as I said, we uh, know uh, that we can get to very simple they are not organisms because protocells are not that but with abiogenesis we you will not start from a cell you will start from something simpler so either either is possible we can have very simple organism evolving at the same time some adapting to be uh, viruses other to be cells or we can actually have what you said but they are both hypotheses are not facts but you cannot rule out one of the two and luca i want to be respectful we'll give you the last word on on the discussion and if it's okay with our uh, awesome moderator and host Tonight, Sam, we can get into some closing statements. Luca, I do want to thank you for engaging in this important discussion. I also appreciate the prep that you've done also for reading my book, bringing some good questions for us to discuss. Of course, it gets passionate at times, but 
you know, you and I are good friends. And uh, again, I thank you for your presence in, in the debate community. So never any hard feelings, my good man. Very, very enjoyable discussion. I'm taken. Don't worry about it. It was a pleasure to be here. So I'm more than happy for this debate. Let's get to the questions. All right. Uh, I think five-minute closing statements. Luca, you can go first. Oh, oh sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's very late from here. So uh, I think that Donnie did a very good debate. It pointed out a lot of interesting things, but I'm still convinced uh, about my positions. I think that we, I have very important questions without answer. The beach one was a very important one uh, because if it's possible to find those units of not uh, degraded DNA will be great and will be a very important evidence for this kind of things. And for your model, it's possible. And I want to see more research on that. I cannot understand why we do not see that or maybe i can so uh very good debate i will have to study a lot on these things i did uh get uh, pushed around so i did not have uh, any citation uh, any quotes for what i said today tonight and it's a problem for a scientist i hope to get uh, that soon and i can stop there all right so thanks a lot luca i just want to remind everyone to hit that thumbs up it really helps with the algorithm and uh donnie brother are you ready yes let me uh let me start the timer all right um all right, here we go. I, you know, I could talk about this topic all day. I just put out a, a two plus hour video presentation from a few days ago, just talking nonstop on herbs. I mean, it's herbs turn out to be some of the best evidence for separate ancestry and independent origins. And I find it hilarious because the evolutionists that want to, um, you know, prop up shared herb sequences as the best evidence for evolution turns out to be some of the best evidence for separate ancestry. And the ones making the videos, for some reason, shy away from debate. Stated clearly, Pelogia or Pelogia, Vice Rhino. I mean, bring it on. Because these guys understand that they can't address the amazing functionality of these herb sequences. I mean, some of these herb sequences like Herb H also appear to have a responsibility in influencing heart cell development. And HERV-K helps embryos develop a built-in immune system that keeps them secure, okay, while the, uh, the, the growing baby doesn't really have any antibodies to protect against pathogens from the outside world. So again, like these are not just basic functions that you can just snip out and the organism uh, still exists. No, like literally without them, we couldn't exist and the evolutionist. And, you know, I appreciate Luca engaging in this debate because it's nothing against him. 
it's not his fault that, you know, he can't show us an example of a non-functional endogenous retroviral-like element going from non-functional to functional or altering its function to the point where it's now essential and critical for life to exist. Uh, because PhD evolutionary biologists, the most militant ones, the most militant ones, who I don't even have to name, admit, no, we don't, we don't have that example. They have to infer, and then they have to downplay it. They have to say, well, no, it's not about the function. And the reason why they got to say that is because they can't address the function. You know, they have a genetics problem. They like to say we have a heat problem. They have a genetics problem. Okay. And so they want to point to the, you know, the so-called mutational discrepancies within the Earth sequence and say, you know, that's what matters. And then still not understanding that if the genome really is mostly functional, that means there's more hot spots than they've assumed, because they'll even admit, I've got paper after paper here, where we have uh, non-random mutations and hotspots. Okay, we also find that these um, functions were unexpected, because they'll like to say, well, these are expected functions. Oh, really? Because paper after paper says that they're unexpected. Anyways, unexpected findings on mutations, okay, where we have these mutational hotspots, and in separate lineages, we have mutations accumulating that appear to reflect ancestry when in fact they were um, ex uh, experienced independently. Okay, so, you know, the evidence for biological noise doesn't exist. And so um, it doesn't work. So I'm glad that uh, Lucas seemed to acknowledge that, which a lot of evolutionists are going to disagree with that because they understand they need junk. They need junk. But junk DNA has been overturned. Transcribing a portion of the genome is a very energy intensive process. Every time a nucleotide is being added to a growing RNA chain, you are consuming a great deal of energy. These transcripts would just clutter up the interior of the cell if they were not playing any real operational role. We understand that a lot of these ERV sequences are only functional in certain developmental windows, and then they're turned off, and they can maybe be called upon again during the life of the organism for adaptive purposes. Because DNA met methylation keeps a lot of them <coughs> silenced, kind of like in your car you have a backup camera you have airbags you have you know lane control you have these built-in mechanisms that are not all turned on so to the evolutionists they see the backup camera that's not turned on or being used as apparently junk it's just not being turned on until you need it a lot of these herb sequences are not expressed or they're silenced until they need to be turned on it doesn't mean they're junk Okay, just like certain non-coding RNA genes like pseudogenes are only expressed under certain conditions. So a lot of these arguments are unsophisticated, and I do thank uh, Luca for at least acknowledging this part. But unfortunately, acknowledging the fact that most of the genome activity really is useful, okay, also forces one to recognize the fact that there's more hot spots in the genome. So just like certain parts of a vehicle are prone to breaking down, Okay, windshield and wiper blades, brake pads and rotors, battery, suspension, so on and so forth. More parts of our genome are susceptible to breaking down. So most of the genome's functional. There's more hot spots. The mutation rate is really, really fast, more fast than the evolutionists ever assumed. So yeah, we would expect similar mutational discrepancies between, let's say, humans and chimpanzees in the ERV sequence. But again, we didn't even begin to flesh out my hypothesis that results in predictions in the book that I wrote here that talks about how a lot of these so-called mutations are not even mutations. 
because it's the evolutionist that assumes that all DNA diversity and all DNA differences are the result of mutations. But we would suggest that the majority of DNA differences are the result of design diversity and a direct prediction of that model is DNA function. And we now have a trajectory that suggests genome-wide functionality. And this includes these ERV sequences because with the overturning of junk DNA comes the overturning of ERV sequences as evidence for common descent in IEO. All right, what a debate. Good job, guys. So Donnie, brother, I got, um, when I booted myself out of the party, I lost the first uh, few comments that I placed in the private chat. So if you don't mind grabbing those, yeah, I can't see yeah. those anymore. And um, um, yeah, I want to also thank everyone for the super chats. You guys are awesome. I got had a few super chats come in and uh, and some gifts also, Doki. You're the man. Thank you very much. Okay, so am I just going to go to the... Okay, so here's the first couple of questions that came in. I'll put them here. Oh, there you go. You can start with that one. Yeah. All right. So Jay asks uh, for $20. He says, please ask Luca, which vestigial organs evolved first? We have 10, the heart, lung, skin, intestinal linings, pancreas, kidneys, brain, liver, stomach. <clears throat> well, the first one was the digestive tract. Uh, an earth, uh, heart, you don't need it uh, if you are small. Uh, you don't need a blood vessel to uh, just like uh, look at something like insect uh, insects. It, uh, the concept is uh, they are vital organs now, but if you look into more um, primitive uh, organisms, uh, more simple uh, organism you will find that there is a progression a progression uh, with that so you will have first a digestive tract uh, you will breathe uh, through basically atmosphere because you are so little and then you will start to have blood uh, but you don't need blood vessel because you are small so you just need the liquid going around and then you need blood vessel because you are bigger and then uh, something to pump that uh, blood through the vessel so uh, an earth earth and so on and so forth um so I guess my explanation is yes, I do find this to be a problem. Since the topic is herbs, I'll um, give a response in the context of herbs. And how this applies is the fact that <clears throat> many of these herb sequences right now, a lot of them are redundant. And a lot of them, we just have solo LTRs, which just represent functional stretches of DNA. Okay. And so, yeah, we do have uh, a, a a set uh, redundancy in terms of the herbs. So it, even if they were snipped out, okay, you know, I, I can be born with both my hands missing. That doesn't really affect my fitness because I could still have kids, right? It's, it's better if I have both my hands, but again, a lot of these herb sequences could essentially be knocked out and the organism would still survive. Not ideal, but they could still survive. 
But many of them, especially the ones that are involved in embryological development, where if we didn't have them, we couldn't exist, these herb elements, or any of the functional ones for that matter, could not come about through slow evolutionary processes. That's why I say it's a lot of storytelling. That's why I like to respond to uh, you know, a lot of the evolutionists in terms of how they address the question about uh, herb function with you know, cool story, bro, because that's all it is, and therefore it's pseudoscience. But again, many of these herbs are critical to life, but they're critical through irreducibly complex associations, okay, with other processes that's going on in the cell because they're tightly controlled and they're integrated that without their specific design and the processes that allow them to function in, let's say, the embryo, again, this is a critical design that we couldn't exist without. So my point is, yeah, there is a um, irreducible complexity even in the herb elements because they couldn't be built up through slow and um, slow evolutionary processes. Just like here, when it comes to the organs, the hearts, the lungs, the skin, the intestine, you know, it all needs to be there. It, it all needs to be working from the start. Just like the Bible says, everything was created very good. And that's what we see with the human body. So go ahead. Luca, um, question hey. for you. Yes. Um, I'm just adding that you can see those kind of things right now because we have um, organisms today with those characteristics. So maybe some does not have uh, earth, earth uh, some does not have uh, lungs or things like that. And you can get uh, progression from uh, existing uh, organisms. So it's not a story. Uh, we can yeah, see that right now. All right. So we have another question from uh, SWE for $10. She says, Donnie, isn't it the case that about 65% of the human and chimp Ys are shared? This leaves about 10 MB of Y sequence that is unique to each species. 10 MB is about 0.33%. Um, okay. So good question. And I wonder in my second PowerPoint presentation with another 500 slides, <laughs> I've got some stuff on the Y chromosome. I don't know if I'm going to be able to find it in time. So, um, yeah, good question. Okay, so I'll answer it here, and I think I can find it in time. I will share screen, Y chromosome, dissimilarity, essentially. Okay, let's see here. Um, so when it comes to, let's see if I can get it, Y chromosome, within humans, there's an incredibly low variation. Every single male Y chromosome, nearly identical, right here. The human Y chromosome exhibits uh, surprisingly low levels of genetic diversity. Okay. Hold Humans on, can, you go full, can you go full screen if you're going to share that? Because the text yes. is small. Yeah, I'm looking for one. Okay, here it is. I'll go full screen okay. here. Um, okay. So when it comes to, and good question, when it comes to the separate ancestry model, we like to look to the uniparentally inherited DNA compartments because essentially they're non-recombining. They're less messy, okay, than your biparentally inherited DNA compartment, uh, your autosomal DNA. So we can build some really nice family trees. And again, there's, there's low genetic diversity, but yet humans, when compared to chimpanzees, notice this paper, Chimpanzee and human Y chromosomes are remarkably divergent in structure and gene content to the point where the human Y 
and the gorilla eye are more similar in overall uh, architecture, gene content, and size differences. If you actually consider size differences, since the Y is half the size between humans and chimpanzees, it's only about 35% the same. If you don't account for size differences, it's about 70%. Either way, it, it's, it's too far different because, again, the evolutionists will want to say, well, the Y chromosome is the most mutating, it's the fastest mutating chromosome. But wait a minute. If the, y chromo if the human Y chromosome is mutating fast, which it is, it's about three per generation, why do humans overall have such low variation, 99.99% the same. We should find some di uh, highly divergent subpopulations if that's true, because we do have geographically uh, specific Y chromosome, because after the Tower of Babel, certain groups spread out, they start accumulating indep uh, mutations independently, but yet we're all still nearly identical. But then the chimpanzee, which is supposedly our closest cousin, is, is so vastly different, and then also um, so different from the gorilla, which again, is just one line of evidence that suggests separate ancestry. Yeah, the reason why the Y chromosomes are so different is because humans are separate in terms of the phylogenetic tree of life than chimpanzees. We're, we're not related. And then they want to say, well, you know, it's the polygamous nature of chimpanzees. They're the odd man out, they'll say. You know, sperm competition has led to the chimpanzee's Y chromosome drastically changing and the gorilla and the human Y chromosome not changing as much. So it's the, the chimpanzee that's uh, the, the odd man out. But still, again, story time. Okay. Here is the implications. What are the implications of this new information? First, for the evolutionist, the Y chromosomes must be evolving much more quickly than anyone imagined previously. Okay. Here's the last thing I want to say is you can look to sperm competition, polygamous relationships in the chimpanzee, fast mutation rates, faster rates of gene conversion, whatever. All, all these explanations they give in these papers, and which they admit are just hypotheses. They still need to be tested for, the, for, uh, you know, for there to be an empirical answer. This is what they're going to have to do. They are now going to have to apply mathematical models to try to demonstrate how a sequence can change extremely rapidly, including, notice this, wholesale rearrangements of significant parts and the evolution of entire gene families in a relatively short amount of time, yet stay homogeneous within a species. Because again, the human Y chromosome nearly identical worldwide. So, you know, that's the last thing I want to say is, I get it, they have their stories, they have their hypotheses. They need to be tested. We need to see mathematical models. So I yield there. Okay. okay I, go uh, ahead, Luca, you want to respond yes. to that? I think I'll pass on that because I'm not knowledgeable enough to give a good, uh, good response to that. I do know that there is an hypothesis from uh, the secular side, but I do not know nearly enough to speak about that. All right, Johnny. No, that's good. All right, that's good. Um, so I've got a question. I'm not sure if you got this. Was this question lost too? Let me get it up here. Well, I'm not able to put them in the chat from uh, StreamYard anyway. Okay. So yeah, I believe that's right about where. So so Mark asks a question for, for Donnie. So how do you explain that the genome of modern humans is 1.5%, 1, 1. which is around 99 million base pairs longer than the Neanderthals and Denisovans? Right. So... Um, I did tell Mark that I would debate him on this. So I'm getting, 
<laughs> all the uh, very thorough technical uh, questions, eh? Okay, so Neanderthals, essentially, why are Neanderthal and Denisovan genomes different than uh, the human genomes, human genetics? Because uh, phylogenetically, the, the way that the genetics are represented on a tree, the evolutionists want to say, well, you know, Neanderthals are a sister species, okay? And um, firstly, I want to say, when comparing the percentage uh, similarity, we're all 99.999% similar. If you bring in the Neanderthal, we're about 99.7% similar to the Neanderthal. So we're still pretty similar. But what explains the differences, including the size differences? Well, a few things, okay? A few things that come to mind, and then I want to touch on uh, hypermutation being a reality. Neanderthals were the, the most inbred, uh, we talked about this in the debate, they're the most inbred people group that ever exists on the planet. I got paper after paper in this slideshow. For sake of time, I won't pull them up. They were 40% less fit. They accumulated a lot of deleterious uh, alleles because they had a lot of recessive mutations that came to the forefront. Since they existed in isolated small populations, they were inbred, which leads to rapid fixation of deleterious alleles. Okay, this is the end stage Neanderthal we're looking at. But Neanderthals in general were closer to the flood. So even before they became highly inbred and therefore uh, had high levels of homozygosity versus heterozygosity, being close to the, to the flood means they would have started off different they would have started off with a different set of biodiversity, okay? There's also a concept called patriarchal drive where in the Y chromosome, you would be accumulating more mutations, okay? Males would be accumulating more mutations essentially because if they're living hundreds of years old, that's more time for mutations to accumulate in both the somatic cell lines, germ cell lines, and therefore more that are, that are passed on. And so, um, you would have differences there because if Neanderthal was founded by an early biblical patriarch in his old age, he would start off with a whole bunch of mutations. And so on a, on a phylogenetic tree, a long branch, which is assumed by the evolutionists to be reflective of, of deep time, could just reflect more mutations in the same amount of time. Okay, also because of the conditions they lived in, and we understand today, there's papers today where... Um, Notice this, two families had uh, genetic drivers of germline hypermutation. So real-time examples today of, of people groups that were hypermutating, with some of them being hypermutated because of environment, but other groups being hypermutated because of, notice this, our findings imply that defects in DNA repair genes can increase, what? Germline mutation rates. So that means... A DNA repair system, we have multiple, over 10, DNA repair systems that are damaged and defected due to mutations result in more mutations accumulating from generation to generation. And in light of what we know about Neanderthals being the most inbred people group that ever lived, the environment that they lived in, I think it is very appropriate to extrapolate that to mean that Neanderthals had mutations in many of their important DNA repair enzymes, which means what? More mutations are accumulating, more mutations are becoming fixed, explaining exactly why Neanderthals are different to modern humans today. So that's about three hours worth of information in, in a few minute answers. So go ahead, Luca, if you had anything you wanted to add. Yes, uh, of course, I do not know uh, what's making the difference, uh, but we do have uh, DNA from those uh, 
humanoids uh, from Neanderthals, Neanderthals, and us. So I think we can get what happened here. And if you did the question, I think you know better than me. Uh, it's peculiar that uh, things like Neanderthal and the Neanderthals are kept out uh, of the work of someone like uh, Jensen. And I think that fascinating. Uh, I will see. I would, I would love to see uh, how uh, the last common ancestor uh, date will turn out if you do that. But apart from that, maybe it was some iterations. Maybe we are looking at uh, duplication or insertion of uh, other elements like transposon. I do not know. I guess I'll do a real quick final word, Sam. I think you're on mute, brother. I just yeah, wanted to pull up some of these papers. Um, inbred Neanderthals left humans a genetic burden. Um, so 40% less reproductively fit than modern humans. So they lost a lot of their genetic diversity. They, they would have started off with, with higher levels of genetic diversity being closer to the flood, the early Neanderthal, okay? Because the DNA we have today is of the end stage Neanderthal when they were at their, their worst genetically, um, so genotypically and phenotypically. We, we understand that they were cold adapted, right? So, so the way that they had, uh, you know, prominent brow ridges above their eyes, dominated by, uh, by a very big uh, wide nose, um, strong muscular bodies, wide hips and shoulders. They were adapted for the uh, cold eco-glacial environments that they existed in. But um, over time, due to their isolation, their inbreeding, they would have lost a lot of genetic diversity. Okay, they would have accumulated a lot of harmful mutations. And uh, there's paper after paper in the secular literature on this. Notice this, the genetic cost of Neanderthal introgression. Recent studies have shown that this Neanderthal DNA is depleted around functional genomic regions. This has been suggested to be a consequence of harmful epistatic interactions between human and Neanderthal uh, allele. So if anyone's interested, I did a, a three hour uh, presentation on Neanderthals a few months back where I back up everything I'm saying with the secular literature. So uh, you'll. All right. So next we have a question from Doki. He he's asking you, Donnie, he said, is your closet full of nothing but blue shirts? <laughs> <laughs> if you open my closet, it's just a big lineup of SFT blue shirts. <laughs> One for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, all the way. But Sunday, I'll dress up. Because by Sunday, my wife's sick of looking at me in this shirt, right? At least I can do. <laughs> all right. So next we have a, a problem, unless you wanted to respond to that, Luca. <laughs> and I have just uh, shirts, uh, so. All right. Looks good. No blue here. All right. So we have a, a question from Obamacare. He says, question for Luca. So they're coming at you now. He says, uh, can you provide an example of a beneficial mutation, I guess, in the context of this discussion? Well, we are talking about uh, transposons, so maybe not mutation, but the one in maize uh, corn, they were quite good. Uh, maize is a stronger, better plant. Uh, that's one. 
also let me think uh, the mutation uh, we find in my uh, area that reduce the probability to die from uh, earth earth attack sorry i yes that's too uh... um I, I can respond uh so beneficial mutations um i've got some slides here from my study into beneficial mutations and here's again the mutation rate you can see here mutation and human exceptionalism or future genetic load michael lynch an average newborn contains more uh, roughly 100 uh, new mutations per person per generation and they admit that most of these mutations that accumulate are effectively neutral meaning they're very slightly deleterious Okay, so they accumulate, they're effectively neutral, which means they're slightly deleterious, like single rust molecules on a car or a single spelling mistake in a book the size of, of an encyclopedia. That means they're invisible to selection. Okay, selection can't see neutral mutations, but what we know now, especially about the function of the genome, is it's not appropriate or accurate to say neutral. It's more appropriate to say effectively neutral or low impact or nearly neutral. Because notice this. It seems unlikely that any mutation is truly neutral in the sense that it has no effect on fitness. All mutations must have some effect, even if that effect is vanishingly small. Okay, so here's the thing about uh, beneficial mutations then. Most beneficial mutations that we study on uh, a molecular level, okay, because oftentimes what we'll, we'll do is we'll look at the phenotype, you know, the new variation. But what we should be looking at is the genotype and seeing what's going on on a genotypic level. And what we'll find is a lot of these examples, they're reductive. It's, uh, it leaves the organism functionally compromised. It's, it's a reduction that's leading to a, a temporary advantage, like sickle cell anemia. Uh, it leads to a type of resistance, but it's actually due to a reduction because it's due to a broken cell, broken protein, okay, a, a deformed hemoglobin protein, essentially. And um, that means there's no way to counterbalance the damage due to the influx of so many low impact deleterious mutations that are accumulating. We also have a lot of examples of the variation and phenotypic novelty based on epigenetic means. So we have a lot of latent information like these retrotransposons that are now manifested. They're pre-existing, they're manifested, they lead to change, novel change, but it's not the type of uh, change that large scale evolution needs because it's already built into the system. There's a lot of morphological adaptability built into the system. Even his example of the lizards. We understand that some of these lizard species have dual reproductive mode capabilities where depending on the environment, one mode is emphasized over the other. And if one mode is emphasized over the other for, for long enough periods of time, the other one will reduce and eventually it'll be lost. So we're not seeing the adding of any true novelty. We just see the expression of pre-existing variation that's already built into the system. And here's what I typically say, because, I mean, we could talk about all day, uh, you know, so-called beneficial mutations, but they can have a hundred of them. They would need millions of truly beneficial mutations to counterbalance the damage done by the pouring in of so many uh, damaging mutations. So, you know, that that's my brief thoughts on beneficial mutations. Uh, Luca, you can have the last word, it was your question. 
Oh, I think Luca's muted. Mute, Luca. The example I gave in the debate uh, with Ken were quite good. Uh, we have uh, cows and a lot of people asked me uh, why it's uh, beneficial to the, the cow. Yeah, it's beneficial because it, that cow will be selected to reproduce. So it's more fit to survive uh, in that way. Le and it's adding things because you are producing more, you have more tissue, uh, you are more uh, blood vessel. Uh, maize, uh, it's better plant, bigger plant, stronger plant. I do not see anything worse there. And also those were not deletion. Uh, we have also duplication and things like that. In us, for the most part, are uh, harmful. But when you got, got a good one, it will be selected. The quantity of uh, mutation does not mean anything if any bad mutation will eventually be selected out and the good ones will be kept. All right. So uh, the next question is from you or for for you from Doki, Luca. He says or he asks, did the RNA world give rise to the DNA and eventually ERVs? Hello. Uh, sorry, I, I'm that tired that I'm starting to talk in Italian. So, yeah, uh, the difference between the two uh, is uh, a sugar. Uh, I do not know the exact process, uh, but we uh, know for sure that RNA and DNA share almost the same uh, basis. So I can see uh, a process where you can form DNA from RNA. I do not know the details, but you just need to have a nucleotide, uh, uh, yes, a nucleotide, uh, and then to form uh, the chain, and that could be helped by the RNA. I think that uh, RNA molecule was the first to be formed, and then DNA. Yeah, so you think the ERVs derived from them? No, 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 no. Uh, at that stage, you just have RNA. I do not think you have uh, ERVs at that stage. Stage. What do you think about um, that? Okay. okay, so the question, the, did the RNA world give rise to DNA and eventually ERVs? So... I, Again, I think especially when it comes to the chicken and egg problems with uh, abiogenesis um, and the fact that design diversity seems to better uh, explain variation in the biological world. When it comes to retroviruses, I believe the, the scientific data is best supported by the fact that retroviruses, RNA viruses, would have originated from within the genome. And I think the Vige hypothesis, although there's a lot of work to do, which is what I'm doing, 
and I'm going to be elaborating on it in my follow-up book. <clears throat> the findings of the new biology demonstrate that mainstream scientists are wrong regarding the idea because, you know, they want to say there's some kind of RNA world where maybe these uh, precursors to retroviruses came about and then eventually they adapted in a way where they are now um, required of a host to replicate. <laughs> and and that's, they understand that problem, right? They have multiple hypotheses, but they understand that's a big issue since retroviruses require a host to replicate. So it makes more sense since there's kind of a conundrum there, a chicken and egg problem, what came first, the host or the virus, that the viruses came from the host, okay? So those that want to reject that model have some problems, some hurdles, and uh, stories aren't going to cut it. So again, instead, RNA viruses originate from transposable elements that were designed as variation-inducing genetic elements, created units of DNA function, I like to call them, because they do so much more than just uh, create variation. They're functional in, in, in all the different ways we, ex we talked about in, in the uh, debate today. Due to the redundant character of um, these elements, their controlled regulation may have been readily deteriorated, and some of them may now merely cause uh, havoc. Again, um, Darwinists are wrong in promoting herbs as remnants of invasions of RNA viruses. It's the other way around. Uh, to date, no clear explanation. This is from the se secular source, or origin of viruses. There's a lot of a lot of problems, and then they readily admit it. No clear explanation for the origin of viruses exists. Viruses may have arisen. Honestly, that's exactly what I've been putting forth. Viruses may have arisen from mobile genetic elements that gain the ability to move between cells. Exactly. Okay. The, the host was created by God, and then the host was front loaded with pre-existing diversity and many classes of functional DNA elements like. Uh, herbs and transposable elements and because of degeneration because of uh, recombination or errors in the packaging process retroviruses came about they can move between the cell or they can cross species and there you go fully infectious retrovirus last thing i'll say is it's, it's fascinating because you can look at the genes of these retroviruses their components and actually track back and that's some work that we're doing is track back to uh what the original host was that it came from. HIV did not come originating in humans, started off as SIV in chimpanzees, and I believe which came from some kind of rodent species, which may have been its original host, where it was not harmful. These become harmful when they cross species, and now the species that it's crossed into cannot regulate the invading retrovirus. And so it burns hot and fast, leads to disease. I mean, this to me is the only way to explain it. So uh, there we go, I yield. Yes, to uh, respond uh, a little bit more in detail. So, for what I can recall, DNA needs uh, an inorganic acid, uh, the same of RNA, a slightly uh, more complex uh, sugar, but we are talking about one uh, carbon more, uh, nothing more than that. And bases are basically the same uh, so i do not see at this moment a reason where it would be impossible to have both uh, i think that the process to synthesize uh, dna was maybe uh, more late than uh, the rna one 
for what I, we can tell, but I see no reason to not have that compound. All right. So Howard asks, he says, Luca, another question for you. He says, how can ERVs being functional BD predict by your model? That also said prior that ERVs being junk was predicted. So if you understand the question, he's asking you. How I would say give me a source for that because if you have uh, ERVs, you will have something that usually uh, synthesize proteins for the virus. So it's quite simple to change something in that and get something else. I will not say that was the case. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I'm waiting for the sources. So since this is the last question, I'll be really brief because we've hit the two and a half hour mark and I'm pretty much out of energy for this. So um, yeah, the evolutionary community, they expected, they didn't even really predict, they expected some function, some regulation in the non-coding areas, but they did not expect or predict just how much function we would discover. This 60 to 80% evidence for activity, about 60% evidence for transcription, um, all this amazing evidence for function in pseudogenes, ERV sequences, ALU sequences, all these other classes of retrotransposons to the point where they're essential, they're critical. Without them, we wouldn't exist. No, they didn't predict any of that. So you'll see some of these guys, you know, these militant critics, like there's one Tony Reed out there. He says, these creationists, they don't know what they're talking about. We never said that there'd be no function. Yeah, you might've expected some in the non-coding uh, regions, okay? but not nearly as much as we've discovered, which is why us as creationists, we've made some really fascinating future novel predictions, okay, that only future observations, testable predictions, the gold standard of science on uh, DNA function. I've made a number of them in, in my book here, comparing fixed ERV sequences and unfixed. So I do recommend it. Book should be linked in the description box. And, um, Claiming that the majority of this activity is just noise or spurious, it doesn't work. It doesn't work for the numerous reasons that, that we've discussed tonight. So I yield. All right. Well, I guess, oh, you want to respond to that, Luca? No, 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 no. It's fine. Yeah. All right. Well, then, uh, hey, I want to thank everyone for showing up. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up. And again, there's uh, Luca, your channel, I'm sure, is in the description. Yes. And uh, yeah, I guess that's a wrap. That's right. Sam, <laughs> we got we got to have you for more future debates, brother, because oh, you wow. did a fantastic yeah. job. Yeah. And look up. It's basically morning here. So I'm literally out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out too. Luca, I appreciate you doing this so late since we're on opposite time. Yes, I made you sweet. Uh, and that's a good thing. That was a very good debate, I think. It was very good. It was very good. I look forward to rewatching or watching technically for the first time. Sam, two and a half hours. Our debates kind of go long. So thanks for That's giving fine. us your time. John Maddox, the after show man himself. He says, after show will start right after debate ends. So I did promise, even though, man, I need like a an IV of coffee right here. <laughs> I'm going to take probably 20 minutes off, get some food um, and a coffee, and then I'll, I'll join 
to battle it out with with some of the <laughs> evolutions. I'm I sure. So okay. sleep, but I think that I lurk a little over LPP. Sorry, uh, Maddox, I will not join tonight. Sorry, I'm too destroyed to do that. Next, completely understand, Luca. We just debated the most technical topic. <laughs> <laughs> in the creation evolution debate for, for almost three hours. So anyways, Luca, thank you, Sam. You're the man with the plan. Thank you so much, brother. And um, to the audience, thanks for joining. Standing for truth. Exactly.